The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is taken from 1 Peter chapter, uh, chapter 5, <clears throat> verses 8 and 9. You can read along with me on pages 1017 in the Bibles around your chairs or on the screen behind me. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, if you've been here any amount of time, you know that's one of the shorter verses we've ever read. Remember grinding through 1 Samuel, it's like 28 verses at a time. <laughs> For those of you who don't know me, my name is Justin Kramer. My wife and I have been members here since, since the beginning, since it was just 10 of us in here, and it was weird on Sundays. So good to be with you. Before we talk about that uh, interesting text, I want to tell you what I did yesterday. So uh, I have a three-year-old. And some of you may know that Lion King has just uh, had a remake. So at 8 a.m. yesterday morning, we were at Lion King. Raise your hand if you've ever been to a movie at 8 a.m. <laughs> Me either. Right? But we were there, and, and the house was full. And I, I, I actually really love Lion King. I want to tell you about one of my favorite parts. So if you don't have a Lion King background, I encourage you, go get one. And this reference may make some sense. So there's, right, Simba, Simba leaves because of Scar, and he goes and meets Timon and Pumbaa in the jungle, and they're talking. So finally, Rafiki, the monkey, comes and finds Simba in the jungle. And this is like my, one of my favorite parts of the whole movie. And so he's, he's talking to him, trying to coax him to go back to Pride Rock, where Scar has sort of obliterated all that it used to be. So Rafiki looks at him, and he has an interesting voice, um, and he finally convinces him to go back, and so all of a sudden, it's like this climactical point in the movie, the music starts playing, and, and Rafiki says, the king has returned. Every time I hear that, I just get chills, and I don't know why. And so uh, that's actually about the time, and they have this whole scene where Simba's running through all different kinds of landscape. He's headed back to Bride Rock. And so we start cheering in my house. So me and Eli are hooting and hollering, Simba, Simba. Right? We're, we're getting excited because we know it's coming. And as I thought about that, I just, I, nobody in my house at least likes Scar. Right? I don't know. I've never actually met anybody that likes Scar in the movie. And, and generally speaking, we don't pull for or find interest in bad guys in movies or antagonists. The only, the only antagonist I've ever rooted for was Denzel Washington, and it's because it's Denzel. But other than that, we, we don't find ourselves interested in or pulling for sort of the villain in the movie. And we find ourselves here at the end of 1 Peter, and we've been in here for several months now, we find ourselves uh, getting instruction from Peter about how to deal with our cosmic enemy. 
Satan. And I've been in church now uh, virtually my whole life. God saved me 13 years ago, and I can probably count on one hand the amount of times I've heard sermons on Satan. It's not a popular topic. But I think what we'll see this morning is Peter thinks it's an incredibly important topic. And so if you're just joining us or you've been through this journey with, with us on 1 Peter, uh, we've seen at the beginning of the letter, Peter's talking to uh, saints in Asia Minor, Christians there in Asia Minor that had received the gospel. And he's reminding them at the beginning of the inheritance that awaits for them. Right? That it's, he says it, is, it has been planted with what he called an imperishable seed. Right? There's a seed that's been planted, which is the gospel, that's watered and nurtured and grown. And it's an eternal seed. He then turns uh, their attention to some practical ways in which they can be godly citizens, godly husbands and wives, but living differently in an ungodly world. And then he turns really their attention to what the, the, the theme of the letter is about primarily. Suffering. Like suffering for righteousness' sake. And we see our responsibility and our obligation to steward and cultivate what God has given us, even in the midst of suffering. And last week, in the previous verses that come right before this, Randy reminded us that, that, that pride and anxiety are connected. Right? And it's our response to that anxiety which actually determines and shows the contents of our heart, whether it's bathed in humility or clothed in pride. And so if, if, if you've probably been around church, and even if you haven't, you've probably heard this sort of verse, right? particularly the part where it says that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So how do we usually read that text? I think we read it in a, a couple of different ways. But primarily, it's meant to evoke fear, isn't it? Right? Become fearful. I remember uh, having heard this verse at some time. I didn't really know what it meant. I just know I didn't want to get devoured by anything, particularly Satan. Right? And so we, we, read, we tend to read this verse. And before I, when we talk about Satan, you probably fall into one of two camps. Either one camp that dismisses everything about him as sort of ethereal and sci-fi and gives, it, give, gives the, the activity of the devil no credence at all. Or you fall into another camp that wants to give Satan props for everything. Right? Anything that happens in your life that has any kind of negative effect on you has to be Satan. I think both of those are unhelpful positions. And, and Honestly, I fall, I tend to lean way harder towards giving Satan no credence whatsoever. Right? Because if I give him any credence, then am I undermining God's sovereignty and control? But if I give him too much, then what does that say about my view of God's sovereignty? And so I think we'll find some clarity on how we ought to be thinking about that. But let's, when we read this text and when Peter's original intended audience, those saints in Asia Minor suffering, and, and Peter says something like, a lion looking to devour. What would have immediately come to their minds is the Roman Colosseum, right, where men went to die 
in the jaws of lions. It's probable and even likely that some of these original readers would have with their own eyes seen human beings eaten alive by lions. Right? We don't have that kind of framework, but they would have. So when they read this and they, and they see, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That kind of imagery jumps off the page to them. But I think oftentimes we probably dismiss it a little bit. Right? It's sort of um, analogous or descriptive. Right? And when we read that, we're probably thinking, and we maybe even have heard, we better watch out. Satan's out to get us. Right? And that's why we see verse 9, isn't it? Resist him firm in your faith. So now the sermon should then focus on eight or ten practical ways in which we ought to be resisting Satan. But I, I think that is not only not what Peter intended, but that is a generally unhelpful way to read our Bibles. For most of us, we are Christian skydivers, right? We parachute into texts and sort of pull out what we think they mean. But the way we ought to be reading our Bibles, a more helpful way, I think, to read our Bibles, is not to read it literally, but to read it literately, right, in its literary context. And so we can't just parachute into verse 8 and 9 and assume we understand what Peter's talking about. Verses 8 and 9 are only informed by the verses before it and after it. So while I do believe that Peter's intended thrust or point of these two verses is how do we resist Satan, it looks nothing like the ways that I grew up hearing. So let's do a little bit of work. If you have your Bibles, I think it'd be helpful to open them or your phones or whatever. Uh, e Eli, my three-year-old, um, she has her own little Bible. And she just can't fathom that daddy's Bible is on his phone. So I think I'm going to have to go back to a paper Bible just for the sake of, right? I might even put my phone inside of it so when we're reading our Bibles together in the morning. Anyway. So how should we read this text? Well, you really have to start back in verses 12 of chapter 4. Right? Beloved. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening. So Peter spends verses 12 through verses 19 being very, very pointed with these Christians in Asia Minor about the suffering that is coming. And, and, and he pauses there at that chapter break, you see, we see it as chapter 5, but this just would have been one seamless letter written to those saints. And he says, now, now, let me talk to the elders for a minute. Those entrusted to guard the sheep, to nurture the sheep. He, he, he looks and says, let me tell you elders how you ought to be handling Christians that are suffering. You're to nurture them. You're to guard the truth for them. You're to care for them. You're to love them. You're to instruct them, not in a, a selfish way that promotes your own gain, 
but in a way that cares for them as if Christ himself was caring for a suffering saint. And so that's really just an aside here in the letter. And then we sort of take a turn back in verse 6, which is where we were last week. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, which is the same language we see when God draws the uh, Israelites out of Egypt from under Pharaoh. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that in the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter's assuming here that suffering leads to anxiety. Because it does. Where that anxiety goes is whether it becomes, are we trusting God or mistrusting God? Right? So, so Peter's acknowledging here, you will have anxiety because you will suffer. But cast those anxieties on Christ because he cares for you. And then we see verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I think for us to understand what it means to be sober-minded and watchful, we have to first understand what it is that Satan is seeking to devour. What is he after? Satan is not after your money. He's not after your family. He's not after your job. He's not even really after your life or your health. Satan is after your faith. His ability or interest in inflicting pain on those spots is because of what it does to your faith. The primary activity and function of Satan is to get Christians to mistrust Christ. And if you're not a Christian, his primary activity is to continue to keep you from trusting Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 4.4, and the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, keeping them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, he, in the book of Job, some of you are familiar with that story, he, even though he's inflicting suffering under God's permission on Job, he doesn't care about Job's cows. He cares about his faith. So in light of Peter reminding us that Satan's primary activity is to come after our faith, what does he mean, be watchful and be sober-minded? A couple of years ago, uh, Beck and I, my wife and I, were on a mission trip in Africa, and so we carved out like three or four hours to go on a safari. And it was cool. I can tell you, we didn't see a lion, but we saw like every other kind of animal. 
I can promise you, if we would have seen a lion looking anything like prowling, my first thought would not have been to be watchful and sober-minded. I'm out of there, baby. Right? So this is sort of odd in some ways because no amount of watchfulness keeps that lion from devouring you. Because we don't need to be thinking about watchfulness out there. Peter's instructing us that our sober-mindedness and watchfulness needs to happen in here. Right? Look at verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God. How do you know whether you're practicing humility or pride? Casting all your anxieties on him. How do you know where you're casting your anxieties? By looking in here. Peter intends these Christians and these Christians to do the work of watchfulness in here. Because Satan is after your faith in here. And so what he's instructing us here is sober-minded is the same reference he uses, uh, Paul uses in 1 Timothy 3 uh, about an elder, qualifications for an elder. It, it, it means to be temperate, to, to literally be steadfast without uh, fogginess, right? To be sober-minded, to be clear of thought, and to be watchful, watching your faith because Satan is seeking to devour it. Now that sort of leads us eager to jump into verse 9. You're like, well, what do I do then? Right? If, if watchfulness and sober-mindedness is the awareness, what do I do? And we see verse 9. And this is really where we're going to hang our hats for the next... 15, 20 minutes. This is the thrust of the whole text, and this is the only question we're going to ask and answer. How do we resist Satan? That's what we're going to ask and answer. So verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So Satan's after our faith. And we know no amount of external or internal watchfulness really keeps Satan from devouring. It, you know, when we look back at Job, the, the only thing he did was not just be watchful, right? So the, certainly there must be something that we ought to be doing in addition to being watchful and sober-minded. Resist him, firm in your faith. So how in the world do we resist him? James chapter 4, verse 7. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What comes right before that and right after that are incredibly important. Make a note to go back and read James chapter 4. In your quiet times this evening, your family devotions, right, as you're thinking on the sermon. James chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Right before... James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
he says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So resisting the devil is not about our fighting or our actions toward him, the devil. It's about submitting and drawing near to God. So to resist the devil is actually to have nothing to do with actions toward him. But responses toward God. So to resist the devil means to submit and draw near to God. Submission meaning to make obedient, right? To obediently or to willingly. To draw near is to move close. But that again begs the question, how in the world do you submit and draw near to God? We rest our head on the pillow of his strength. This is Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So our instruction from Peter is to be sober-minded and watchful, knowing that Satan is after our faith. And to resist the devil and his active ministry against us by drawing near and submitting to God, by leaning on his strength, by putting on the armor of God. which is listed for us in Ephesians 6, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes that are lined with the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. But again, we're left with the same question after each instruction. How do we use the armor of God? This is all coming back to how we resist the devil. But it seems like every question we ask and answer, there's another question. And it's how do we do it? Peter doesn't leave us hanging. By resisting the devil and submitting and drawing near to God... Leaning on his strength. By the way, beginning of Luke, Satan, uh, Jesus has already resisted Satan, hasn't he? Right, both in his 100% humanness and he's already resisted Satan in his 100% godness. He's already done it. It reminds me of like uh, my daughter right? I've already done something, and she wants to come, no, no, dad, let me show you how to do it. I'm like, baby, I've already done it. It's already done. It's been done, and you can't do it. I don't tell her that. She just tries, and she gets frustrated, and she can't do it. That's what we do. 
Christ has already done it. So by resisting the devil, we're submitting and drawing near to God by trusting and leaning on his strength and putting on the whole armor of God of which we can do nothing with. We didn't give ourselves the shield of faith. I didn't put the helmet of salvation on me. None of us in here gave ourselves righteousness. I certainly don't regularly wear the belt of truth. Right? I'm instructed to put on the armor of God. But I can't do anything with it because I didn't give it to myself. So what do we do? Where do we go? Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old man, the old self, incapable of doing anything with that armor, incapable of resisting the devil, incapable of seeing the light of the gospel that is found in the face of Jesus Christ, is dead. He's done. And there's a, a new man, a new woman that has been created that now not only sees Christ, but sees the armor that he has put on us and that he's clothed us in. And it is only because we are in Christ that we can do anything with that armor. Because he who started a good work in you will be the one to bring it to completion. It's only in Christ that we can draw near to God. Because Christ has drawn near to God. Because Christ is God. It is only in Christ that we can stand firm in our faith. Because Christ has given us our faith. He has held our faith. He has protected our faith. He has sustained our faith. It is only in Christ that we can put on the belt of truth because Christ is full of grace and truth. It is only in Christ that we can wear the breastplate of righteousness because he, Christ, has fulfilled all righteousness. It is only in Christ that we can lift up the shield of faith to fight off anxieties or circumstances or suffering. Because Christ has given us our faith. It is only in Christ that we can put on the shoes of peace because Christ descended into the depths of hell and purchased and plucked our peace from the grips of Satan and death. It's only in Christ that we can wear the helmet of salvation because Christ has not destined his people for wrath, but to obtain salvation. It's first, that's 1 Thessalonians 5. It is only in Christ that we can take the word of God, the sword of the Spirit, and do anything with it. Because in the beginning was the word, and the word was God. And the word is God. 
Friends, the only hope we have in resisting the devil and drawing near to God and leaning on his strength and wearing the armor of God and using it is to nestle ourselves more deeply in Christ. Colossians 1. I'm just going to flip there. This is what happens when you pull a verse that's not in your notes. I'll just tell you what it says since I can't find it. Tells us that all of the treasures and wisdom of God are hidden in Christ. All that we need for life and godliness are found in Christ. And our temptation, when we read this verse and we read it out of context, it becomes about us. What do we do? How do we resist? And we, we, we practical theology ourselves to death. We put all these different practical instructions in place that keep us really doing nothing more than being Pharisees. And, and practical things are good, but not if they are detached from the heart. And so Peter's call to these saints and Christ's call to us is absolutely to be watchful and sober-minded to know what it is that Satan is after and to resist him. But by drawing near to God, putting on the armor of God and burying our heads in the arms of Christ because he is the one who has defeated sin, death, and Satan. Look, Satan is a million times stronger than you and I. And he hates us. He hates Christ. And his primary function is to get us to mistrust Christ. And he's really good at it. Satan comes as an angel of light. Right? If you notice in the garden, which is one of the clearest interactions we get with Satan and man, with Adam and Eve, his version of the truth sounded pretty close to the actual truth. And next thing you know... All these subtle, subtle movements, subtle shifts, we find ourselves not being watchful. And we find ourselves far from Christ. And so our effort, if there is an effort, is to swim upstream towards Christ, not the way that we're being pulled away from Christ. But again, <laughs> we're left with the same problem. How do we do that? You know, one of the most difficult aspects of being an American Christian is that we are in love with our individual rights. We love some liberty. 
We love some individualism, and praise God for that. Right? He's granted that to us. But we approach our Bibles and our Christian walks as individuals, which is largely not how the church has approached the Bible. Right? I'm not Justin, who's a Christian. I am first identified with my new identity. I am a Christ, John, whose name happens to be Justin. Our primary identity is in Christ, not in self. And so what we do is we take a text like this and we go home, we're talking about it over lunch, and we say, okay, let me think about how I can fight sin or how I can draw near to God or how I can resist the devil or how I can put on the armor of God or how I can bury myself in Christ. How can I do that by myself? And we create these little boxes of personal holiness there is no such thing as personal holiness. There's relational holiness, right? If I told you that I was working on my personal husbandness, what is that? I, my husbandness is only in relationship to how I actually function as a husband to my wife. Our holiness is only clear in the way that we relate to one another. So we're left with this instruction here to be sober-minded and watchful. Right? To, to know what it is that Satan's after. To, to draw near and submit to God. To trust in him. To hide ourselves in, 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 in the armor of God knowing that he will lift the shield of faith for us. Because he's done it. That he'll seal the breastplate of righteousness for us because he's done it. But the call to wear the armor of God, to draw near to him, is the call to do it together. That's the end of verse 9. This is not me talking, this is Peter. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter means to frame that the only way we can resist Satan, the only way we can stand firm in Christ, the only way we can remember that we are buried in Christ, is if we do it in the context of a community of Christ followers. There is no Christian anywhere that can finish this race alone. And if you are in here and you are doing that or you are trying to do that, you need to be very, very concerned. Peter intends for us, Peter intended for these Christians in Asia Minor to fight sin, to explore and unpacked faith, and to function as Christians in a distinctly non-Christian world, not as individuals, as one body with many members.
And what that does is it helps keep us where we need to be, which is not in our own Herculean efforts, but in Christ's completed efforts. So let me give us three or four helpful instructions, I think, as we finish. And by the way, Peter says what we just talked about in the next verses, which we'll look at next week. Look at verse 10. And after you suffered a little while, God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Hey, good news. Your faith isn't about you. You can't sustain your own faith. You can't resist the devil on your own. You can't draw near to God on your own. We cannot do it. And in God's kindness and mercy, what he has allowed is a unique and a special grace to take place when his Christians form together and draw near to God together. Not just on Sundays, on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays. That there's something unique and cosmically different about us celebrating our union in Christ together. Three things. One, Beg God every day to hold, keep, and sustain your faith. You know, it says that his mercies are new every morning. Right? That's because our need of his mercies are new every morning. Beg God to keep and hold and sustain your faith. Number two. Beg God to reorient your view from self to church. Reorient our views from reading the Bible and thinking about daily Christian living, not in terms of self, but in terms of church. Right? How, how do you know if you're growing in humility? Not by spending a bunch of time by yourself and saying, hey, I think I'm growing in humility. Right? How do you know whether you're resisting the devil? How do you know whether you're drawing near to God? How do you know whether you're following sound doctrine? How do you know whether you're actually living in Christ? Not by doing it alone. Number two. Number three, beg God to give you a heart of affection for him, right? Because we, though we are 
righteous, we are righteous sinners. Where we've been made righteous by Christ, but we struggle with sin. And so we feel the ebbs and flow of bounty and barrenness spiritually. Christ is the one who lit the flame. He's the one who will flicker the flame. And he was the one who will keep the flame of affection for him burning. Isn't that odd that none of our practical application has anything to do with us doing anything? Because we can't. All we can do is beg God to do the work in us that we know we need. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.